What's going on, guys? Welcome to the Creating Wealth Podcast, where I, Kyle, from Kyle Curtin Real Estate, interview local top dogs in the real estate investing, wealth building, and personal finance industries. Let's build together. What's up, guys? The guest on this week's episode of the podcast is doing some really big things and has an amazing investing story so far. This is the final part of the two-part interview with Michael, and it was so much fun. In this episode, we talk a ton about apartment syndications, including the different kinds of syndications and rules and types of investment structures, approaching potential partners for your deal, evaluating syndication opportunities, and much, much more. There's a bunch of really interesting info in this episode, and I hope you enjoy. Let's jump right into the episode. That's a really cool idea, too. That's that's super unique and creative. How'd you guys kind of think about that? Like, did you just kind of get the idea one day? You know, you just kind of drive by a hotel and be like, what if? <laughs> I, would, I would love to take credit for it, but uh, there, I, I'm not the only person who's thinking about doing this. Um, it's certainly been happening with others. Uh, the the Our model for this, by the way, and my we've got kind of much, much bigger ideas than the, than just one on these. Um, and of course they're just ideas. So it's always good to have big, hairy ideas, right? A lot yeah. of the, the bags as some people call them, the big, hairy ideas. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, so there, there's a company out there called common common is, uh, basically doing the same thing. They do a lot of it with co-living, which is a little different than micro housing co-living. You share a kitchen and you share a living room amongst a suite. Um, so some co-living in, in our, you know, depending on the building might work out for us, but we think micro housing is a little more where, where people want to be. I don't, there are certainly a younger generation that are used to roommates and suites and those types of things. Uh, but for us, where we're catering more to an upscale, you know, it's still a lower price point because it's a small footprint than maybe you would get in a bigger, a bigger footprint, but it's going to be nice. Um, we think that uh, micro housing is probably the sweet spot there for the professional that, um, you know, can afford it, wants to live in a nice place, but is likely going to spend very little time in their specific apartment anyway, <laughs> you know, yeah. they're going to, they're going to enjoy being out and about in the city and whatever else is going on. So. That's super unique. I, I love that. So co- common is kind of our, our model of what we'd love to get to someday, but it all starts with doing the first one. So of course, get the first one done. Yep. Wow. That's crazy. Oh my God. <laughs> so like with something like that, like, is that like, would you have to do like a full rehab to like, uh, like separate utilities and stuff or like, I'm yeah. just kind of like funneling through it in my head. I'm like, huh? <laughs> yeah. Well, we're, I mean, we're looking at a lot of different options from ground up development to redevelopment of, of hotel assets or office space as well. Although hotel tent tends to be a little bit easier conversion, uh, than office just because of the way, you know, rooms are set up with plumbing and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, but no, you don't, you wouldn't independently set up the utilities. You'd put them all in one, you roll it into the room. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Yeah, because it's, you, yeah. You I was going to say, I'm like, <laughs> well, and, and the other thing is, you know, you're obviously a Massachusetts guy like I am. So we, we all think, oh, you know, you got to pay your own utilities, but there's a lot of States 
where what happens is the landlord pays all the utilities and then they send you a bill for your portion of the utilities without metering them. So for water, for instance, if there's a hundred units and the water bill is a thousand dollars, I'm just using round numbers, you know, that's yeah. 10, 10 bucks a unit. And so everybody gets 10 bucks a unit. And so you end up getting your utilities as a, like an add on to your rental bill. It's called RUBS, uh, Ratio Utility Billing System. Um, uh-huh. And it's not legal in Massachusetts, as far as I know. Um, <laughs> not, I, I think there might be certain ways to, to meter things, but um, it's a tough thing to do in Massachusetts. So as far as I, I can tell, it's much more popular in other states, RUBS. That's really crazy. I'll have to do a little bit of research into that. I'm, I'm really curious. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So, Massachusetts has some really um, uh, strict laws around what can and can't be charged to tenants. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, you got to follow them, right? Everybody, I'm a rule follower. So <laughs> all the rules, but in other states where that's the norm, then that's what you do. In fact, that's that's one way that we add value to a lot of these bigger apartment complexes is we'll take a look and and maybe the rents really aren't that far below market. But if you dig in under the covers, you realize that we're not doing any rubs bill back in or the, the current owner isn't doing rubs bill back. Uh, and that is the norm in those others. So, boy, if you can recapture a big chunk of your utility costs you've just added a whole bunch of money to your net operating income, which in turn drives the value of your property up. And so you can do literally no rehab, no CapEx, just adding a rubs program can add a bunch of money or a bunch of value to your property. That's insane. I didn't know they had anything like that. I figured it was just like either, you know, the landlord pays if it's like a common line or like if everything's separate, then like, that's crazy. So is that really just like a, I mean, obviously like generally speaking, but is that more of just like a Massachusetts kind of norm or like a, a landlord heavy, I mean, um, a tenant heavy state like that kind of does something like that? Yeah. I don't think Massachusetts is the only one with those rules. Um, but to be honest, I'm looking in a lot of the states that don't have those rules because yeah. they tend to be um, more favorable to a landlord. Uh, in states like Massachusetts, it is uh, very much a tenant-favored state in terms <laughs> yeah. of all the laws um, yep. for everything. And uh, and so a lot of my focus is in states that are more landlord-friendly. Yeah. And that's uh, one of the reasons I love investing in syndications. I'm also doing my own syndications these days, but I also invest in syndications. And what I love about them is that uh, you know, it's a way to invest in, a, in apartment buildings that have, are in areas that are conducive to cash flow where they make money, but they also have appreciation and they have tenant, you know, uh, t- or, uh, landlord friendly states and they have population growth, like all the things you look for, it's, it's hard to find sometimes where you live. Yeah. So I love this idea of investing where it makes sense and living where you want to live because mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm invested in Kansas City, which I think is a great market. I'm invested in Atlanta. Um, and so, you know, I think those are great markets and I don't live there. So <laughs> you're in Massachusetts. <laughs> I'm in Massachusetts and I don't want to live there, by the way, as much yeah. as I like those markets for investments, they're not places I want to live. Yep. And uh, I love New England. I plan on staying in New England and uh at least till i retire and i'll probably spend a little time in florida like everybody else in new england seems to do (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly you know that really is insane so like how 
I guess, how did you kind of start to get into uh, like the syndication space? Like, um, like what kind of interested you about it? Like right off the bat? Um, you know, I think it's an evolution of people's, I I feel like a lot of people have go through this evolution when they think I'd like to get into real estate. A lot of them start with the vacation rentals, like we talked about, and then think, oh, maybe I'll buy a single family or duplex or I'll house hack or I'll, um, you know, or, or even if they had more money, maybe they'd be like, Oh, I'll go buy a four, you fourplex. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and then they kind of get into it and they go, okay, well, I just, you know, geez, I'm, I'm thinking about greater Boston. You want to buy a fourplex in, I don't know, Quincy, uh, just outside of Boston. <laughs> you're, you're talking about 1.2 million, 1.3 yeah. million, right. Yep. You got to put a few hundred, 300 down. Um, it's not really going to make any cash flow for you. Uh, you know, you're hoping for the appreciation, you're paying down your mortgage. That's good. Uh, you know, you get into that and they go, Oh, I, that's, I'm stuck now. Like I, I got to wait till I have a, like two or three more hundred thousand dollars before yeah. I go buy my next one. <laughs> and, and it's like, okay, that'll take a while. Um, especially since you're not making money off the cash flow, And so they get stuck in a hurry, uh, in terms of being able to continue to invest. Yeah. So that's one of the, and, and I did that by the way, not in Quincy. I, I found a, a place in uh, Western Mass that uh, has a lot better cash flow. And so I've invested there. I have 20 apartments out in Western Mass and they do make money and, and they do all right. Um, but again, it's like, okay. So, I mean, at some point you just sort of run out of money and it's, this is a better way to do this. What if, what if I could go invest in places that I think are better investments? Yeah. And then how do you do that when you don't know the market? I mean, am I going to get a plane to Kansas City every, you know, every few weeks and <laughs> with brokers and look at properties and really understand the markets? And yeah, you know, <laughs> like, wow, that's really, that's a lot of work. <laughs> that's a lot of expense. So, um, so how do I do that? I did, I did that with as a limited partner in a syndication. So uh, syndication is a, uh, basically a general partnership or sponsorship team finds the deal. They put together all the numbers in the business plan. They're going to execute the deal. They're going to sign for the loans. They're going to execute the deal. They're going to make sure that the properties get managed, that they get rented, that maintenance gets done, that the CapEx, the capital expenditures, the roof repairs, all the things that you're going to do to add value to the property, all that gets done. The general partners run the deal. The limited partners, um, they bring the money. Okay. Yeah. So there's a loan, right? So it's a it's a ten million dollar property and there's an eight million dollar loan. There's uh two million dollars of capital that needs to come, plus some closing costs and things like that. But you know, just talking round numbers. So the limited partners invest the money. And as a limited partner, your job is to make sure that you believe in this business plan, in this asset, in this general partnership team. Um, in the market because you're going to put your money into it. And then at that point, you really don't have anything to do. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have a, uh, the general partners are going to do all the work and manage the property. You're buying it like a stock. Yeah. And so on one side, that's super appealing because you have nothing to do. Yep. People also get a little uncomfortable if they don't have a lot of control either. Right at that point, the general partners are doing all the work and making all the decisions. So that's why it's really important that you vet out the general partnership team, the um, the market, the the asset, all that stuff. But what do you get in return? You get in return the rewards of being invested in a place that was going to be so much harder for you to invest, and you probably never would do it. Yep. <laughs> 
right? I mean, I, your alternative is to go find a property yourself in Kansas City. Yeah. yeah. Milk. <laughs> <laughs> Not happening. Yeah. Wow. And then, you know, I guess the way, the way that works is there's, you know, the, the asset, the property makes money and that money is going to come back in, you know, terms of cash flow from your rents after your expenses. And uh, a lot of times there's a preferred return to the investors. So the investors that put up the money will get a return on their investment first. And then anything above that gets a split between the general partners and the limited partners. Because obviously the general partners aren't doing all this work for free. Yeah. There's some <laughs> upside for them. Yeah. Um, and so the general partners will share in that upside sometimes after some kind of a preferred return to the investors. That's the way a lot of my deals are structured. Uh, not all of them, but a lot of them are that way. And, uh, and then if you've added value to the property, that's when you can get the much bigger returns on the end. And that's how you sort of juice your, juice your returns, so to speak, in terms of um, be able to take what's just you know, income from your rentals. But now if you can refinance or sell that property in three, four, five years, you take all of that gain, whether you refinanced or sold it, and you pay that capital back to your uh, investors as the limited partners, the investors, you pay the capital back first to them. And at some point, you know, we can have very little capital left in the building and still own it. I think you mentioned that earlier. Isn't that great? Like <laughs> you still own this thing, but you don't have any money into it. House money. Um, yeah. <laughs> so whether it's no money or, or, you know, a lot less of your money into it, you can have some, you know, that that's the ideal scenario. Yeah. Um, or you sell it and you've, you know, you've done great. So either way, you know, there's risk. There's always risk. You gotta, <laughs> you gotta believe in the, you gotta believe in the deal. You gotta believe in the partners. You gotta believe in the market and you gotta, you know, take of a chance. Course. I have so many questions for you, but <laughs> I'll, I'll do some research on my, my own time uh, after this, but yeah. So like, just out of curiosity. So I know like very, very, very little about, about that kind of thing, uh, like extremely small amount. So like, there's probably like a minimum investment for limited partners, right? Like, I know it's probably going to be like situation dependent and stuff, but like this, I assume there would probably be some kind of minimum, right? Yep. Yep. There's always a minimum. Mm -hmm. um, you know, th this is basically governed by the SEC, the way these yeah. are set up. So there's, there's rules. Uh, as far as the minimum, it is dependent on every deal. The, the general partners set the minimum. Um, all of mine are at least 50 that I've done so far, $50,000 minimum investment. Yeah. Um, I've seen some as low as $25,000, uh, but generally speaking, it's 50, 75, 100 um, is, is kind of, now when I was at the REITs, it was 5 million. So there's much <laughs> bigger minimums too. Yeah, no biggie, um, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that's a different game. <laughs> at least the different game than I'm in today. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, $50,000 minimum, uh, roughly. And... Uh, what else? Um, the other, oh, here's an important thing to know, right? It is there's two different types of syndications, uh, real estate syndications. One is known as a 503B. A 503B means that you, um, you can only have accredited investors or sophisticated investors that you have a prior relationship with. So, and you can't advertise. And there's, and by the way, I'm not an attorney. <laughs> not a CPA. Go talk to yours. Yeah. That, right. Um, just, just my experience and knowledge, uh, or, or my understanding. So, um, an accredited investor 
has certain criteria that's set by the SEC. It includes either a million, you know, some of the criteria, million dollars net worth with, uh, with excluding your primary residence or a certain level of income um, that you need to get to as well. So, uh, or, or either or. So accredited investor is one thing. If you're not accredited, and many people aren't, uh, then you, you need to be at least sophisticated, have a good uh, understanding of financial investing and what you're getting into and all of those sort of things. So for a syndicator like me to be able to offer you it, to invest in one of my deals, if it's a 503B, we have to have a prior relationship. So we have to have known each other and it has to be, you have to be sophisticated. So we have to have had conversations around making sure that uh, we have a common understanding around your your level of sophistication as it relates to investing. If mm-hmm. we don't have that, I can't even show you the offering because that would oh, be advertising. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. So if anybody is interested in <laughs> investing in, in my syndications or anyone else's, you need to get that prior relationship set up with syndicators. So I have an investor group, the Spire Investment Properties Group, uh, investor group, and people can join on my website, spireinvestmentproperties.com forward slash join. And, uh, and then you, we can have a conversation. I'm glad I talk to people all the time um, and we figure out whether they, you know, it's a good fit. And, and then that allows me to show them any opportunities that I might have in the future. The other kind of syndication is called a 503C. And with that, you can advertise. So I would show that to anybody uh, that is interested. However, only accredited investors are allowed to invest. So if you're not accredited, um, sorry. sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's extremely interesting. So what's kind of like the, is it just more of like a regulation kind of thing? Like the structure, like, is there like incentives to do like either one or There's no incentives per se? It's just two different sets of rules. Gotcha. Um, and these came around about four or five years ago, four years ago. Um, they were, they were, you know, put into in, in they were enacted so these are just two different ways you can go about doing real estate syndications oh cool and, and so you know it's your choice there's pros and cons to both yeah um but once you pick one those are the rules you run by yeah so does that kind of like depend on it like the deal so like Mm-hmm. I, I apologize. Like I said, I have so many questions about this and I'm trying to kind of calm down a little bit. Oh, <laughs> but, that's all right. I got time. So <laughs> ask your questions. Um, so on like a big project, like a big syndication like that, right? Like, would you kind of find like the property first or would you find the investors first? Like, oh, now that is a great question. <laughs> That is a great question because when I first started uh, trying to go down this path, I focused on the investment first, the property Mm -hmm. first, right? So, and I love the Tampa market. I still love the Tampa market. It's still sad Tom Brady went there, but that's- (laughs) I know. (laughs) Um, So I- I love the Tampa market. I invested time to, to meet some brokers. I went down to the market. I toured it. I got a better understanding of, of what was there. I started bidding on properties and I had an opportunity that I finally said, I, this one works. I think this is a good one. And now it was a lot bigger than what I could afford on my own. And yeah. so I said, oh, people tell me it's so easy to find investors. Well, let me go do that. How? Yeah. 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 <laughs> How do I do so that? <laughs> the first thing I did is I called a couple other syndicators that I know have investor groups and said, hey, I got this great deal. Do you want to partner with me? And we can, you know, you can bring the invest your investor group and we can get it done. 
Yeah. And the first one said, I really don't like Tampa. Uh, I grew up there and uh, I'm really, I don't like sea level rise. I'm concerned about it. And it is a real thing. I live on the coast, but I'm thinking, <laughs> geez, when the city of Tampa goes under, we got a bigger problem. <laughs> you want to invest in an apartment building in Tampa, it's a sea level rise. It's like, wow, that's really serious for you. Um, so unfortunately what I thought seemed great because I knew he grew up in Tampa. Yeah. <laughs> he said, no, I, I'm out. And then the other one I talked to uh, said, you know, I've got two deals going right now and I'm just tapped out. Like I can't do another one right now. And I went, okay, who else do I talk to? And I tried talking to some more people, but I didn't have a lot of people to go to at the time. It was a couple of years ago and I had to let the deal go. And then, and that was it. I said, wait a second, this isn't working. I can't do one without the other. Like they both have to come together at the same time. You have to have investors, you have to, and the money, one way or the other, and you have to have the deal. So um, I spent all my time on the deal side and I said, I'm going to switch gears. I'm going to focus on building an investor group and then partnering with people that can be deal hunters. And together we build the business plan and we execute the plan. I talked a lot about earlier, I I kept saying I plan and I execute. So that's some of the things that I I do when I work with partners that are in these markets. We got the boots on the ground, understanding knowledge of the market. They're building the relationships with the brokers and they're finding the deals. We're working together on the business plan. And then we, we also, you know, I can bring my investor groups, bring those deals to my investor group. That's incredible. So like, I imagine it must have been kind of like a lot of a challenge to be able to find those partners, like, you know, for that first deal, right? Or like, did you just kind of network and stuff like quite a bit and like, you know, find those people on the ground and just try to, you know, like you said, you know, kind of put both of the pieces together at the same time. Like, yeah, how do you kind of like go about that? I guess <laughs> it's curious. continuous networking, right? It's yep. continuous networking for me that, that at least that's the way I'm doing it. You know, I was yeah. two weeks ago, I was at a, a real estate conference called Dealmaker Live. Mm-hmm. And there are lots of people at all stages of their real estate investing career from some people who have not done anything to build, you know, bought a couple multifamily, small multifamilies to, you know, people with a hundred million dollars of real estate syndications. And What's great about people in this space is everybody seems willing to help each other out. You know, we're not in competition with each other. It, it's always, you know, I suppose that you can get a couple of syndicators focused on the same market that may, may be in competition. But generally speaking, people are looking to just learn from each other, help each other and, um, you know, build. And it's a partnership game. It's a team sport. Yeah, definitely. I mentioned that earlier, and I, I do believe that's the case. You know, you need investors that have money that want to invest in this stuff. You need, you need people who are really good deal finders and relationship builders with brokers and with uh, property owners, and are willing to kind of pound the pavement to find those deals. And then you need people that have the wherewithal to build a capital stack. Sometimes with create, you know, I. I, I I say creative financing. I would just say more than your simple go get a mortgage financing. Not that there's anything <laughs> for creative about it. I mean, it's all legit. It's just there's a lot of different financing things out there and finding the right one that fits the right property, um, are kind of architecting that deal and then and then executing and managing the plan. So there's a lot of different skill sets. And to have one person that can do it all and make it all come together in one shot. It's really hard to do. My hat's I off bet. for those who have done it. I mean, it happens. I talked to one just the other day who's doing his first one all on his own. And 
uh, you know, and he thinks he's going to pull it off, which is great. It's a small one and that's great. And uh, God bless it. It's, um, but it's hard. It's hard to do. Yeah. So my strategy is to create those, those partnerships and I find them through networking. That's extremely interesting. Like, so obviously, you know, I'm still looking for my first multi, but I feel like, you know, definitely like partnering with people on the future is, is the way to go. Um, you know, just from hearing like stories from people around me and, you know, people like yourself and like, I'm just kind of like curious, you know, how you would like kind of ask people, you know, if that's something that they would be willing to maybe explore, you know, if you found the right deal, you know, like I hear it on the bigger pockets podcast sometimes, you know, mm -hmm. going to people and saying like, Hey, Joe, you know, like, uh, do you know anybody that would be interested in maybe partnering on a deal? you know, like indirectly kind of asking them without kind of putting them in a weird position to be like, no, or, you know, sure. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's kind of the only thing that I've, I've heard, but like, especially for like a first deal, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and so yeah, you said a few things there that are interesting. So, <laughs> uh, one, one is, you know, you say, especially for a first deal and you're yeah. thinking, I'm guessing you may be thinking I'm doing this on my own. Why would somebody want to partner with me? Exactly. So especially when you're doing something bigger, it helps on your first deal to partner with somebody who's done it before. Yeah. And so if you find the deal and you bring in somebody who's done it before, now when you're talking to investors, there's a track record there. Now, yeah, it's not yeah. yours specifically, but your team, you and your partner have a track record, right? So that's helpful. And, and as an investor, I'd be very weary about putting my money into a first deal for somebody that's exactly. a partner that's been there, done that before. So I think yeah. that's important. Um, and it, tend, it has to usually be a bit bigger deal because now you got, you got to make it interesting to, yeah. to partner <laughs> too, right? I mean, it's got to yep. be interesting for everybody involved. Um, and so that's one, th one, one angle. I think the other thing um, is about just your mindset when you approach investors. Yep. If you approach with the idea that, hey, do you want to give me money? Then <laughs> I will invest it. It, it's a different mindset than I'm, I have this opportunity. If you are interested, let me know. Yeah. So a little bit's your mindset around it. I mean, you're bringing them an opportunity to invest in something that is not easy to find, True. especially yeah. if you think it's a really good deal, right? I mean, if you think it's a good investment and you wouldn't be doing it if you didn't, then your mindset should be, I have a great opportunity to share with you. And with that mindset, it becomes easier to have conversations. That's really interesting, you know, kind of swapping that mentality of like, you know, like asking for money essentially and kind of swapping that to, I have an opportunity, you know, like, is this something that interests you? Yeah. That's, that's crazy. And a bunch of people will say no, and that's yeah. okay. We're and used to that though. You, you might know? be like, surprised <laughs> that some people will say, you know, I, I've always been interested in real estate. Let me see. Yeah. And uh, different people have different, take different amounts of time to get comfortable with it. So sometimes you'll talk with them about a deal and they'll just kind of get cold feet at the beginning. I'll be honest. I did that. Yeah. I, I said no to the first three syndications I looked at. When I looked back, I was like, wow, this, <laughs> I should have invested in those. <laughs> um, but I would just, I didn't, I had to get to a certain comfort level and understanding how this all works and just yeah. what do I look for and you know, it felt like a leap. And then once I did one, 
and I started to see how it worked. I was like, okay, well, Ooh, okay. I mind investing <laughs> more with this. I, we can do this all day long. This yeah, is great. Let's do it. You know, so um, that's interesting. This, yeah, that's some of it. It's getting getting over that leap. So sometimes it takes more than one conversation. Yeah. The other thing I find is that um, you know I do a lot of educational content or uh, on my website around just you know how all this stuff works and and so forth. And sometimes it just takes people to kind of watch your videos. I do a lot of videos and uh, understand more about how it all works. And and then they they come out and, and ask you like, hey, I'd, I'd be interested in, in working with you on this. So sometimes it's really just about telling people what you're doing and how you're doing it. And they become interested and they come to you. And that's great because, you know, that's how you partner together and make things work. Yeah, that's really cool. I, I like that a lot. Oh my God. <laughs> Especially like you said, you know, from the angle of like, just putting yourself out there and, um, you know, just kind of telling like everybody in the world what you're doing and, you know, you never know who's going to come out of the woodwork. Right. That's right. Yeah. Yep. And, and some people will surprise you that people, you know, maybe you work with or something and, um, you never thought they had any interest in real estate and they're coming up to you saying, geez, you know, I was thinking about buying a house down the Cape and renting it out. And, um, I heard you do some real estate and what do you, what do you, you know, and then yeah. you start talking with them about, and, you know, opening their eyes to all lots of different opportunities and maybe a house down the Cape and renting out is the right thing for them. And, and that's, that's super. And I've helped people do that too, as a real <laughs> estate agent in Massachusetts, but, um, there's just there's a lot of opportunities and a lot of ways to get into the real estate game and uh it's just you know constant learning for everybody i think yeah i love that that's that's really cool michael oh my god i i've heard like some really crazy stories about like you know people partnering with other people for like you know their first commercial deal and like i don't know like just hearing all kinds of different stories and you know the vast majority of them you know investors with like I don't know, like, I couldn't even really put a number on it, but a lot of units, basically, you know, like, there's really a limit on how many you can do yourself, right? I mean, eventually, you have to kind of explore other options, right? I mean, you know, and just be able to use financing from other places, because you're, you're probably going to run out over time, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> Right? Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, I mean, I look at it from two different angles. One is if you want to be the active real estate investor, which I think is a lot of what you're talking about now. Yeah. And you want to use your own money. I mean, it's hard to scale with your own money. And yeah. I mean, things are expensive and, you know, apartment buildings are expensive things. So, <laughs> you know, it, it, unless you're, you have a large pot of money that you are, you are managing <laughs> um, personal finances, then yeah, in order to continue to scale and build it as a business, then it's about making money for your investors. Yeah. You know? And, uh, and if you, the idea is you're going to make enough money that they're very happy investors and continue to invest with you and, and that you also, you know, get some rewards out of that as well, because that's why you're doing it too. Um, so yeah, as an active invest, as an active real estate investor, if you want to scale and make it a business, then um, you want to bring in investors. If you're looking to just, uh, some people are just looking to tuck some money away on the side and, you know, hopefully the mortgage is paid off in 20 years and I'll have this asset left at the end. I mean, it's not the worst uh, idea in the world. It's way better than what a lot of people do with their money or, right. or the fact that they even have that much money to invest, which is great. So uh, I just, you know, for me, if you're going to be active uh, to me, I, I think you, you want to scale it up and you want to make sure that you're, you're making investors happy. And that, yeah. that's the goal there. Um, 
But I think, you know, a lot of other people go the other way. They start getting into it like, this is a lot of work and this isn't the kind of work I like. Kind of like I was with hair salons. Like, this is a lot of work and I don't really love hair salons here. Yeah. So why, why am I <laughs> spending my time doing this? Like some people get into real estate and the property management side of it and the tenant phone calls and the, you know, the evictions and the notices and the, all the other stuff. And they go, why am I doing this? And then they start to discover this um, passive investing and I can just put my capital to work. I can spread it around um, to different deals in different areas of the country and, uh, you know, and, and, and get a pretty good return. I don't have to do any work. I just read my statements every month and check yeah. in and see how things are going. <laughs> That's um, pretty cool too. <laughs> yeah. It's like, why would I work for that? Yeah. <laughs> so if I could, if I could get it on as a limited partner. So. so another question for you. So I guess, how would you vet, um, you know, like a syndication, like if you saw a deal or, you know, you were in like one of the investor circles, um, you know, that you were like other syndications have, and you have like, I, I assume like some kind of analysis or something, right? Like some like elaborate thing. Like, how would you kind of, I guess, see if that's something that, you know, would attract you as an investment, but like kind of beyond the actual deal itself, you know, like, mm -hmm. how would you, is there a way to kind of vet like the people or like, you know what I mean? Like, yep. I don't know how to kind of. No, I mean, your, your question spot on. So I meant to mentioned earlier, my Spire Simple Syndication System. It, it is exactly, it's a, it's a five-part video series on exactly how I would look at a syndication opportunity as a passive investor. Yep. So, um, and, and the most important thing, not that it's number one in the video series, but the most important thing is the people, which is what you mentioned, yep. right? That general partner or sponsorship team, that's the same same term. Um, does that team have the skills to execute the business plan on the deal? And, you know, some of that is just getting to know them and understanding what their background is. Obviously, I, in that team, I, I would look for a track record of having yeah. done some similar things. I think that's important because if you haven't done it, how do you know whether your plan makes sense? Yep. Um, so having having somebody who's done it as partner that part of that team, um, I, I think those are particularly important. And, you know, I always want to work with people with integrity and are good communicators. Um, so understanding more about how they're going to execute that deal in terms of how they're going to communicate with you, like how often are you going to get updates? What's going to be in those updates? Can I yeah. see one of your previous updates? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it, it's funny, not everything goes swimmingly on every one of these deals. I mean, yeah. things happen. And yep. what, what I think investors should look for from their general partners is great communication around that. I mean, we had a terrible time in one of our properties that I was a limited partner in. And I love the way the general partner over-communicated the problems we were having. Now, I didn't get all excited about the problems, but I was <laughs> sure glad to hear them yeah. before, you know, just getting some bomb dropped on me later. Yeah. So I, I do think when things go or, you know, poorly, that's when you want to see extra communication. Um, so understanding how your partners are going to communicate with you. I think that's super important. So that, that's kind of the partnership side of it. Uh, we talked about the markets earlier, the market, the submarket, understanding that, you know, is that a market you want to own property in? Yeah. Uh, with all of the rent, you know, growth, rent, rent growth, uh, you know, population growth, job growth, all those things. Are they in your favor? Are they not in your favor? Um, you know, is it, is that area completely reliant on one employer? 
And if yeah. that one employer goes, you know, moves out, then Yikes. the whole area goes <laughs> like, that's, that's, a, you got to know that going in. So, yeah. and that's another way to vet your general partners. Do they know the market well enough that they can explain that to you? Because as a passive investor, you shouldn't have to figure that out yourself. If you're figuring yeah. it out, you can verify, but if your general partners haven't given you data that makes you comfortable with the market and submarket, that's a telltale sign that they either don't know it or don't care enough or are too inexperienced to realize that that's important to tell their investors. Yeah. So uh, that's another piece. I, I would say, you know, another one is just around, uh, we call it underwriting. I've been calling it a business plan throughout our conversation, but uh, it, it, the more technical term is called underwriting. And that is very specifically um, what are the, you know, what are the rents looking like month over month, year over year? What do the expenses look like? Um, are they growing? Are they, um, just, what does that plan look like? Uh, and, and what's behind it. And if you don't understand the business plan and believe the numbers going into it, then, um, you know, I think that's something you should get comfortable with and your general partner should help you get comfortable with that. Yeah. Uh, but you know, I, I'll be honest, I sometimes see deals where people will put a rent growth, you know, CapEx with a rent pop that, that makes sense because you're putting, you're doing something to make that rent pop. But then I'll see some deals where they'll add a 5% rental rent increase year over year after that for the next 10 years. I just don't think that's believable. Yeah. Like if you're not at doing anything to the property. Um, rents general, I mean, there are some markets where it has had a run like that, but boy, that doesn't seem like a very conservative approach. I like to see underwriting that takes a more conservative approach where it's more in line with kind of, you know, it, you may beat it. Um, you're probably going to meet it like that. That feels good to me. The here's the best case scenario. I don't know. Um, Gives a better chance of things going wrong than right. In that case, I would rather rather be conservative and aim to beat it, and and hopefully beat it, and have very happy investors that got more than they thought out of it. So, underwriting is another key piece. Uh, the loan and financing and understanding interest rate risk. That's another piece, and make sure that they're um, they're dealing with that uh, in turn in a prudent way because interest yeah. rate risk can kill you if it's not properly managed. So, is the interest rate risk like? Is it usually like the financing not like fixed? Is it like a variable kind of? Yeah, kind of. <laughs> it's all over the map. You know, it yeah. depends on on the how the pro general partners have structured the deal. So, um, I think a lot of people like agency debt, Fannie yep. Mae, Freddie Mac debt. Um, that and and that tends to be. 10, 12 year fixed interest rates. And that tends to be about the longest you can get on fixed interest rate. There's other options too, but generally speaking, it's one of the longer term fixed interest rates. And those are great, but to qualify for a Fannie or Freddie loan, property needs to be stabilized, which is 90 plus percent occupancy. Um, and it's based on the value of the property with the in-place rents. So, um, you know, what a lot of times people are doing is they are using bridge loans. So a bridge loan is a higher rate interest loan. It tends to have a shorter term. It, um, it sometimes it goes variable. Uh, some of sometimes it's not. Sometimes yeah. You know, and there's there's just a whole bunch of ways to mitigate risk around that. But a lot of so I I would be weary of a bridge loan that comes due let's say in one year, yeah. where you're forced to refinance in one year, um, and it's on a variable rate. 
And, uh, you know, what if you don't add the value to the property? What if it doesn't appraise the way you wanted to? What if interest rates are much higher? Your business plan can blow up in a hurry. So just understanding your interest rate, the variability, when the refinance has to happen, um, and just and any mitigation to that that may be in place. Because I think just kind of the doomsday scenario is you have to refinance, interest rates went up multiple percent, the building there doesn't, the cap rates went the wrong way and your building doesn't appraise for what you want, you're upside down on the property and um, everybody's out, right? So yeah. look, that's, that hasn't happened a lot in multifamily because there's so many good things about, about multifamily. Um, you know, when, when uh, prices get expensive, more people rent and uh, all, all the, all kinds of things. But for me, I look at interest rate risk as one of the things that I'm weary of and I want to make sure I understand before I get into. Yeah. That's extremely interesting, you know, especially on that much of a scale, you know, and like, just kind of like a lot of different things that they can hit the fan, you know, and just to kind of, you know, figure out how to combat uh, against that. Or, you know, like you said, like, just kind of understanding that, um, you know, that is a, like a risk there. Yeah. And that's the thing, right? There's, there's, there's kind of no deals out there that literally check every box yeah. of everything you want, you know, and you got it at the right price, right? Yeah. <laughs> so it's really about making sure you know and evaluate all the key factors and get comfortable with it overall, yeah. you know, and, and know what you're going into. That's very interesting. So Michael, I will ask you, how do you define wealth? How do I define wealth? Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> So I, I guess I, I would define it as freedom to do what you enjoy. Okay. So I, that's probably self-explanatory, but I think that's why we all do that. One, I just love real estate. I love real estate investing. I Even if I had enough money that I could never possibly spend it all and my kids couldn't either, I may still very well be doing real estate investing just because I yeah. love, I've, I've loved my whole life doing projects. And, and real estate investing is just really cool, fun, big, interesting projects. Yeah, <laughs> it really is. Um, but I, you know, how do I define wealth? It's about freedom to do that because I love it or not because I have to. And the freedom to do other things I love to do too. You know, I've got a family and kids and I love to do things with them and spend, you know, I've got parents that, you know, they're older now. So I'd love to spend more time with them. Uh, and so there's... For me, being wealthy is about having the freedom to do everything you want to do. I love that. I love that answer so much, you know, just to be able to, to recover that time, you know, to be able to, to really enjoy the things that you want to, um, you know, and not necessarily be tied down by, by an obligation, you know, to, to put food on the table and stuff. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm a very driven person. Um, I've, I've been driven my entire life and, uh, when I started my career, I worked for Accenture. It was Anderson Consulting at the time. And it's, um, you know, it, it was, it was rigorous, it was 60, 70 hours a week. Sometimes it was a lot of work. It was a lot of focus and I did like it, but I feel like I missed out on a lot. My first yeah. 10 years working, especially as I got married and started to have kids and so um, as much as I am still driven, it's about the freedom of making sure you're doing 
everything you want to be doing, everything you want to be doing, not just the one, the thing you think you have to do in order to be successful. Yeah. So to your point, what is your why? What, what has kept you driven for all these years? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, you know, that's the thing for, for me, it, yeah, my why is about freedom. It's kind of the same thing. It's about my freedom of time to, yeah. to do what I want and freedom of time and freedom of location. Yeah. So I it's, love a, that. it's definitely enough to keep you going. <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh, wow. Um, what values are most important to you when it comes to doing business? Integrity is number one, right? Integrity. I, I only, I, I had uh, somebody say to me once, I, I don't deal with uh, a-holes and I don't deal with windbreakers. And I, I got the a-hole part, but I was like, what's the windbreaker? Yeah. It's, it's like when the people show up with the windbreaker that say things like FBI on the back. Uh, <laughs> yeah, like, well, oh yeah, that makes sense. I get so, it now. <laughs> that's crazy if that's happening, but um, yeah. yeah, no, integrity is uh, number one core value of mine. Uh, value creation, I think value creation is a that you know that's something that I grew up through my Accenture world. Uh, value creation was a core, um, you know, a, a core a core belief for for Accenture, and it's ingrained in me the eighteen years I spent there. Um, integrity and, and uh, open communications. I think, you know, think straight, talk straight is a motto I live by. And I, you know, to me, if you don't have good, clear communication, you, you can't solve anything. And so those are three core values that I, I live by. I love that so much, you know, just like the, the overall transparency, yeah. you know, and like, just to be able to kind of put like what you have on the table and, um, you know, I can just imagine like all the, uh, the positives and like the open doors and the opportunities, you know, that have came up, um, you know, just from, uh, just from being transparent, you know, and telling people what you do and everything. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> yep. Transparency for sure. Definitely. And I'll ask you one more question here, Michael. I could talk to you for hours and hours, man. I, I have to do a lot more research into syndications. I'm uh, pretty hooked in. <laughs> um, do you read? And what is your favorite business investing or real estate book that you would recommend to anyone? Or like, you know, a podcast or anything? <laughs> uh, well, other than your podcast, of course. <laughs> um I, so, so my, my favorite, my favorite book is never split the difference with Chris Voss. I just find that so fascinating. Um, I, I don't know if you've ever read it, but mm -hmm. man, he is a master negotiator. Um, I think that is such a great skill in all of life is negotiating. And, um, yeah, I, I mean, I've, I've spent a lot of time in my career negotiating. I spent a lot of time in various negotiating classes and uh, I just think his book is phenomenal. So it is. That is a really, really good book. Uh, I'm probably going to read that one again, honestly. It's been a while. <laughs> I, I don't think you can ever read it too much because yeah. as soon as you read it, you try to practice, you're like, oh, I'm not nearly as good as Chris. Like, I, you know, <laughs> you, you, he's a master, right? So you got to read it, reread it, try some more stuff. Um, yeah, it, it's great. Exactly. It's kind of funny. Like, Elsie, uh, I think. He, he might be in like ads on Instagram or something like that. Chris Foss. 
I see him like everywhere. I swear to God, like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> FBI master negotiator. I'm like, oh my God, here he is again. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's unbelievable. Even like, you know, some of the stories in that book of like, you know, some of the situations he was in, um, you know, and like really just like how it broke down, which it's been a while, but I want to say there was a story that he told about like there were guys that were like in a bank or something like that. I forget if there was like hostages or not. Hostages. I think it was, yep. Yeah, it was like a really, really big thing, you know, and like just kind of taking a step into his mind and seeing, you know, basically how to disarm, um, you know, like the hostiles inside, like just through words and stuff. It's it's unbelievable, you know, and just yeah. to be able to kind of like digest some of that and like try to implement that. And like, yeah, it's it really is an incredible thing. I, I think it was from that story. He had the line, how do you expect me to do that? And, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. And it's like this, that, that is like magic right there. It's yeah. like, as soon as somebody wants you to do something, instead of saying no, just say, how do you expect me to do that? Yeah. Maybe I'll come up with an answer and solve it for you. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's like, you don't have to say no. You just ask them to solve. Like, how, how do you expect me to do that? Yeah. I can't, I can't do that. It, you just to the, say that. Just say, how yeah. do you expect me to do it? Exactly. <laughs> now they're problem solving for you. <laughs> you just outsourced your problem to the person who gave it to you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, that book really is incredible. You know, even like just the psychology and the wording and like, it's it's a really crazy book. I'm definitely going to go back and, and read that one again in the near future. <laughs> Excellent. Um, so Michael, where on like social media and stuff, can you be found, you know, like the, the business, I know, you know, there was a couple website, uh, websites that you told me about earlier and I'll link them. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Yeah. That that's my, my company website, spireinvestmentproperties.com. And then I'm on LinkedIn, um, mm -hmm. Mike, Michael Thomas parks. So on LinkedIn, um, I do a little bit of Facebook, so you can probably find me there, but it's a little tougher to find me and, um, all my stuff's on YouTube, but the best way to get to that is through, uh, through my website, which is all linked over. Perfect. Guys, um, go people subscribe. can email me too, by the way. I'm sorry, Kyle. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Michael, Michael at spireinvestmentproperties.com if anyone wants to email me. Guys, definitely reach out to Michael. He's amazing. Uh, thank you, Chris. Kyle. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking about Chris Voss. Thank you, Kyle. <laughs> all right, guys. That concludes our Creating Wealth podcast episode for today. I want to thank every single person that has listened this far. It really means a lot to know that people can learn from me and with me as we build wealth together. Hopefully you can take home at least one thing from this podcast that will improve your life just a little bit. If you could, please check me out on social. That's at Kyle Curtin Real Estate on Instagram, Facebook, and I'm on Bigger Pockets. Until next time, let's build together. <laughs>